0: Join me in prayers. As we ask the Lord's blessing upon uh, the preaching and reception of that word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come again before you. We confess that this is your word breathed out by you and given to you, uh, by you, to us as your covenant people. And yet, Lord God, even so, we are often so hard of hearing, and so we ask that your gracious spirit would grant us grace this day, that you would give us ears and hearts that are ready and willing to believe and to receive. And we pray, Lord God, that you would magnify your Son in our midst, that the good news of the gospel that is presented in him would come to us, and Lord, that we would find hope and life in believing. And so we ask grace for your people and for the one who speaks on your behalf in order that your name might be magnified in all the earth. It's in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Men. <clears throat> well, I wonder if you thought for a moment what's the greatest tragedy that you can think of in our time. Uh, World War I, maybe, 50 million lives lost. World War II, 70 million lives lost. Communism, 100 plus million lives lost. These are things that we would come to our mind if we would answer that question. But I wonder how we would answer if we were a Jew in the 6th century, right? Or around that time or after that time. What's the greatest tragedy that befell the people of God? Well, around 600 BC, Babylon had become the dominant kingdom in the Middle East. And Daniel 1, to 1-3 tells us that because of Judah's sins, the Lord gave his people over to the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. They invaded the promised land. They destroyed Jerusalem, the city of God, the holy city, and his house, the temple. And they took the Lord's children captive and exiled them to Babylon. And if you were a Jew, this was truly like the end of the world. And it's there in exile that Daniel wrote to encourage his brothers and sisters that the sovereign God who brought them there, <clears throat> that it was the sovereign God who was the one who brought them there and to exhort them to live faithfully to him for the next 70 years while he was there. That's what we see in this book. Men faithful to the Lord, life of faith in exile, hope of faith in exile. But the main point on display, of course, is God's faithfulness. Right, particularly in this chapter, chapter one, we see God's faithfulness to Daniel and his friends as they are exiled, exempted, and exalted, as we began last week. Um, briefly, verses one to seven, we saw that they were uh, God's faithfulness to them as they are in exile. Right here, we look how the Lord was faithful in judgment. This long, uh, the Lord is long, long, long suffering to a disobedient people and a people who'd been warned and reminded again and again and again. And then finally the Lord is faithful in his promise to judge them for that continued rebellion. Recall at the very beginning of their history, the Lord warned Israel of that matter-of-fact consequence of their sins. right Back in Leviticus, back in Deuteronomy. But Daniel and his friends... Being dragged off to exile wasn't just the fulfillment, generally, of the covenant curses of Leviticus twenty-six. Right? Listen again to the prequel verse of the book of Daniel. Right? The verse that sets that gives the setting of this book in Second Kings chapter twenty, verses sixteen and following. Listen to what it says. Second Kings chapter twenty, verse sixteen. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, "Hear the word of the Lord." Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is the exact fulfillment that we see uh, taking place in Daniel. Right, It's this specific word of judgment that is fulfilled in these opening verses that we see in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem. He took treasures from the temple of God to put them in the house of his own God. And he took some of the royal family, right, the nobility, the descendants of Hezekiah, and he puts them under the charge of the chief court official, or eunuchs, as they're called. And God's judgment upon the line of Hezekiah had been faithfully carried out just as Isaiah had prophesied that it would. Yet even in God's faithfulness in this judgment, there's also hope, right? There's also hope. Why? Because the God who judges is not only sovereign, but he's good. He's a good God, right? And even the hard things that he brings us through, they all come through his perfect, controlling, sovereign hands, right? There's no fear of victory or conquest of the wicked for his people. None of it is without meaning or without reason. Our future so often, we reflected, seems to be firmly in the hands of those who are hostile and against us in the forces of evil. But we have to acknowledge, even as we see in Daniel, as he does in exile in his situation, that all of our experiences, all of our encounters, again, like these young men that we read about, All of those encounters, big and small, are firmly in the hands of our sovereign and good God. And that gives us hope, even hope in the judgment that he's faithful in issuing out. And so we need to know those very things while we are here in exile in this land that is not our own. God's sovereignty and also his faithfulness. faithfulness. And so we read here in verses 1 to 7 how the program went. Daniel and friends are given new names. And I'll remind you of these names, what they meant, as they're replaced with these Babylonian names that they're assigned, these pagan names, associated with their false gods. Right? What what do their Hebrew names mean? Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means the Lord is a helper. And again, they're given these these Babylonian names: Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Right? They're in an attempt to change their identity, to change who they are, to reframe, to reprogram them, and they're taught the language and literature of the Babylonians. Again, to replace and displace the scripture that they knew, the scriptures as the source of their wisdom and their worldview. And they're given food from the king's table to eat to get them used to being dependent upon their new master. And then at the end of this process, now reprogrammed, they would what? They would enter into the service of Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, control of cultures through indoctrination of the youth by the political elite is how societies have worked for millennia and still do to this day. But for us and our families, right? We can learn from this. We must teach our families and ourselves, that this world belongs to the Lord. It is His world. And you do this by by what? By teaching our families. By, by we teach our children God's Word. And we show Him God's love. And we show them the importance of corporate worship, of coming together and reminding ourselves of who we are and of our true homeland and participation on the Lord's Day. And we pray and we plead with the Holy Spirit to give them new hearts. You must hold out for them, parents of the Lord. In honesty and authenticity, the truth and love of the Lord to which you proclaim. But what is Nebuchadnezzar's big strategy here? He gave these young men an extreme makeover, as it were, right? A new culture, a new literature, a new luxury unlike their other captives, new identities and names to help them forget their God, to displace their identity, and who they were. And we face similar tactics, do we not, brothers and sisters? Not only you young people, but every time we go on the Internet, or we listen to the radio, or we open a book, or listen to a podcast, whatever it might be, whatever we're exposed to, we face the enemy's plan to de-Christianize us, right? to de-Christianize us, or to uh, make us less faithful, less committed, less identified as who we are, to make us less like the Lord and more like the world. And sadly, churches follow suit with this as well, with their tactics and their strategies, right? Many churches say, this is popular in culture, let's do that, right? Rather than realizing that the culture of Scripture is very much quite different than the culture of the world. And rather than living out in faithfulness to God's Word in its culture, right, is what education and instruction in the Lord, Ephesians 6, I pray that we all would have renewed focus and commitment to, to the Christ who saves us and living for His honor and His glory, despite the insanity and the wickedness all around us in the collapsing societies of the world. Right? That's our call, to be faithful to the Lord and His call on our lives. Right, all right. So this setting uh, that we see here with Daniel and his friends, Right? God exile for God's people. God's faithfulness in judgment, and also hope in that judgment. In the next, we see God's faithfulness for these young men. They are exempted, right? They are exempted. We see God's faithfulness to Daniel as he resists assimilation into Babylonian system by his resolve to not be defiled by the royal food and wine. Right? Listen again to what it says <clears throat> in verse eight. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the official, the chief official, for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink, and gave them vegetables instead. <clears throat> right, why not eat this food? What is the point here with Daniel? What is his resolve grounded in? What's the point? Right, it's not that the food wasn't kosher, right, which uh, met the Jewish dietary laws. It's not that the king's food would have been associated with sacrificial offerings to the gods, right? because the vegetables likely were also offered to the gods, their gods. Um. And if so, they would have needed to uh, uh, permanently abstain from, the, from those foods, right? But they didn't. And we know that they didn't permanently, permanently abstain from these because in Daniel 10, it says this, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for, full, for the full three weeks, right? So he said, even says in his own uh, declaration, for this period of time, I didn't do these things, right? But afterwards, it was different, <clears throat> Right, so what's the best possible interpretation? What would we think would be the reasoning? Right? There may be some of all of those factor in. But the best possible interpretation of Daniel's decision is that after all of Nebuchadnezzar's attempts to remake Daniel and his friends, Daniel decided to draw a line. To draw a line in the sand to show that he was not completely assimilated, right? but had his own identity as a child of God. Again, maybe some of these other reasons factored in. But I think this is the most viable. right? And, and, and it, it raises the question for us, what would you think uh, 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 of, right? If, if I asked you to think of what was the most, uh, the one example of Daniel's heroism, right? what would you think just uh, on a big picture scale back? Most of us would think, oh, it's stopping the, the mouth of the lions in the den, right? And of course we see this in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, to say this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Right? Hebrews 11, 33. And then 34, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, and on and on he goes. But we have to realize that Daniel's Action at the dinner table was equally as heroic as his action in the den of the lion. And we see in this that Satan's attack on the children of God by using the world is not merely obvious and outward uh, in its ways to directly attack us, right? Directly, but in subtle ways, subtly, in causing us to accommodate and assimilate ourselves into the world around us. What sneaky and subtle ways are we being pushed and pressured to assimilate? We always have to ask ourselves this. And we have to ask ourselves as well, where do we draw the line in that process of who we are and the pressures upon us? Because, brothers and sisters, we need to have reflexes and routines in our lives that are constant reminders of who we are and whose we are and our dependence on that self-same God for all the good things in our lives reminders, reflexes, uh, routines in our lives. Like what? Like giving thanks outwardly or inwardly in our hearts for our food. Like cultivating a posture of thankfulness in all things. Remembering that and thanking God, right? In the big things and in the small things. Like refusing to engage in those things that identify the world. Like coming together, as we talked about last week, and reminding one another of our true homeland. Right, speaking the language of our homeland engage in the actions of our homeland living life and showing the love of our true homeland and of the grace shown in our lives right and this is incredibly encouraging as we do so as people in exile as we are so Daniel resolves to abstain and then he sought permission from the chief official right for their personalized way of eating that would set them apart right Daniel eight. Now, this isn't a prescription for a universal way of eating, as some might have said. Right? That's not the point of this chapter. It's to give you a diet plan. Um, uh, we look at Peter's vision in, in, in the book of Acts, and we see that what, what was given before him. All kinds of four-footed animals, birds and reptiles, right? It was loaded with meat and said, it's good. Eat, right? And so we can't reduce the incident of Daniel here in this um, with the food and his resolve to refuse the king's food to a specific diet plan, right? That would be to diminish what's going on in the text. But we see here as Daniel's resolved to do this and he inquires of the chief official, the official was sympathetic to their request. It says God granted him favor and sympathy in the eyes of this chief official. But true to form of a government bureaucrat, what does this official say? Right. He was afraid of the, of the potential consequences on him for altering the policy that had that been given to him. Right. But his response wasn't an outright refusal of their request. And so Daniel, he goes further down the chain of command to the guard who looked after them, and he proposed a 10-day test. A 10-day test. And at the end of that trial period, he says you can assess our progress and then go from there. And lo and behold, right, it says at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, and literally it says, and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food, right? More so than all the other youths who ate the king's food. And so the guard did what? He agrees to continue to provide the four young men with the means for their alternative way of life. This alternative way of life by which they could maintain their constant awareness of the one true God. And as we've said in the past, the focus is not only or primarily here as we read this on the faithfulness of these four young men in taking a stand in their faithfulness to God, but rather it's on God's faithfulness to them. God's faithfulness in their exemption from the prescribed food, even as it was in he was faithful in exile, but his faithfulness in their exemption from the, the, the prescribed food and drink that was put before them. And as I thought about this text I wondered uh, that if sometimes in our weakness and in our cowardice, we fail to live boldly before the Lord in our decisions, in our questioning, in our planning, in our ambition, and so forth. We fail to do this. So maybe we find longing and fulfillment in Christ alone, brothers and sisters. Because there's no fulfillment in any other place or person right, than Christ alone. And so we see this faithfulness of the Lord in their exile, in their exalted, uh, in their um, exemption from this uh, routine, from this regiment. And then we see God's faithfulness as these four young men are exalted, right? They are exalted uh, in verses 17 to 21. Um, again, listen, listen to the words of Daniel. It says, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Right, and so it's God, it's God who gave. Right again in verse seventeen, to these four young men, God gave, right these things. He gave all four of them exceptional abilities and gifts. It's the Lord who gives, and God's favor upon them enabled them to answer all Nebuchadnezzar's questions, and to stand out before them to the extent he found them ten times better than all of their other advisors. And so God put them in a unique position where they could, what, be a blessing to their captors and build up the society in which they found themselves by the Lord, he is sovereign, while at the same time enabling them to remain true to him in the midst of these remarkable pressures. Right? That's an incredible thing. Incredible thing. In our familiar story, our familiarity with, it, with the stories of Daniel and his three friends, um, keep us from realizing what a remarkable work of the Lord's faithfulness their testimony and resolve was in the situation that he placed them. And we miss the comfort and encouragement that we can gain from their lives as well because of this familiarity. We just see them as little disconnected children's stories. They're not, right? This is incredible encouragement for us, brothers and sisters. If the Lord could keep these young men faithful to him then and there... Then he surely can keep us faithful to him in our trials, in our difficulties, in the situation that he's uh, placed us. No matter how overwhelming that situation might be, God is able to keep us through it, right? Keep us through it. It is his work from beginning to end, and he will do it. This faithfulness of God can be seen again at the end of this chapter, right? Which says this literally in, in verse 21. God's faithfulness in verse 21 where it says Daniel lived until the first year of Cyrus How was that a demonstration of God's faithfulness? Well in second chronicles 36 22 to 23 the end of the old covenant Canon it says this the last words before the silence before the coming of Christ, the Matthew, right? It says this. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And so the canon closes in the Old Covenant. And then 400 years of silence. And that last word, as we've talked about before on numerous occasions, let him go up. That is a war verb. It's a war cry. Right? Who is going to up and do these things? And then the silence, and the silence, and then boom, in Matthew, we have the genealogy of the one who will go up, right, and save his people and satisfy all these things. But this was 70 years, right? This verse in 2 Chronicles 36, uh, uh, was 70 years after the time when Daniel and his friends were taken into exile. And God's faithfulness proved sufficient for Daniel throughout that entire time. Right? This word of hope at the end. Right? Daniel lived until the first year of Cyrus. And what happened? Oh, the Lord stirred in him to proclaim to go back to Jerusalem. Right? Go back out from exile. God's faithfulness proved sufficient for Daniel through this entire time. These 70 years, Babylonian kings, kings came and went. And the Babylonians themselves during this time were replaced as the ruling world power by the Medo-Persians. In the person of Cyrus. Yet God sustained his faithful servant through the whole time. And in the same way, he is able to preserve us throughout the trials and tribulations that we go through. No matter how intense or how long they last. When the world does its worst, God's faithfulness is enough. It's better. It's most. It is sufficient for us. Right, And I've said in the past... That if we are resting our ability, uh, uh, resting on our our ability to dare to be a Daniel, right, as we we hear so often, if we if we're resting on that, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. Because not just me, but I think if you look at your lives, you will find that you are not like Daniel and his three friends. We are more often spiritual cowards. Swept along in the exile that we exist in. Taking new names, eating the world's food, having the look and accent of this land. And if the point of Daniel is, be like Daniel and everything will be great. If that's the point, we can just surrender now and go home. Because as we get to know Daniel better, we are confronted again and again with the fact that we are not Daniels. But dear Christian, the good news of the gospel is not simply that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. Right? That's not the good news of the gospel. The good news is what? It's that the Savior has come to deliver the faithless and compromise people like you and me. And our salvation doesn't rest on our ability to remain undefiled in the world, but it rests on the pure and undefiled offering that Jesus had provided of himself in our place. Christ came voluntarily into this world with all of its pains and trials. And he endured a far greater temptation and suffering than Daniel ever did, or that we ever will. Yet he remained, what, entirely faithful and undefiled, pure to the very end, without spot and without blemish. And he grants what? He grants the perfection of his obedience to all those that entrust themselves upon him in faith. And what is more, Jesus has already returned from his time in exile, right? And he now sits where? At the Father's right hand in heaven. And he's prepared our places there. And his presence is there. And it guarantees that one day we will be with him. There is his people <clears throat> before our Savior. And so the cross means what? It means that his faithfulness redeems the unfaithful, right? The resurrection and ascension are guarantees of our inheritance in heaven. So brothers and sisters, remind yourselves. Remind yourselves of this gospel again and again and always. Fix your eyes on Christ, crucified, raised, and exalted. He has not uh, not only mapped out the way home, he is the way home. And He has promised to bring us to that end, our true home and glory, our true homeland. May we trust in Him and ask Him to work in us a true faithfulness. And may we, for Him, be a blessing for those around us, Right as we reflect heavenly wisdom in our lives to that world around us. And may we be ever dependent upon Christ and His saving work, looking to Him to keep you faithful here and to the end, and not by your own efforts. Brothers and sisters, may we increasingly long, long for our Savior until He comes again and brings us our eternal reward. Amen. Let's pray. Our almighty and loving God, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. We pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that honor You above all other things, Lord. We pray that You would grant to us we would increasingly live for your glory. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that you have promised to be with us even through the strains and difficulties and pressures in our weakness, in our forgetfulness, in our foolishness, in our feeble uh, spirits, that you promised to be with us through that. For you are, you are strong and you are powerful and you remember, Lord. And we pray that we would indeed develop more and more a posture of humility and submission. Uh, to your leading and to your mercy, Lord. We do praise you for your wonder and love and mercy and your work in renewing your people. Lord God, we pray, help us to believe the truth that you tell us is glorious and beyond, beyond our finite minds, Lord, that we are united to Christ and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, new creations. Lord, help us to live and think and pray in ways that bring you honor and glory, Lord, we pray that as Your Word has gone out, that it would have its full, powerful effect here and around the world. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for the, the, uh, the, this body that you saved us into. Lord, we pray that You would protect this body and that You would grow us, not only in number but in depth, that we would live in ways that would love one another and reflect the love that we've been shown in Christ. Father, we do pray for the officers of this church that you would grant them wisdom and love to care for your people. Pray that you would bless them in their work. And Lord, we do pray for this congregation. Be merciful unto us. Provide for our physical needs. Strengthen us spiritually, we pray, Lord. Keep us from growing satisfied. Keep us from growing fearful, Lord. But strengthen and conform us, we pray. Evermore into the image of our King, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ.